Psalm 76, beginning with verse 1. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you utter judgment. The earth feared and was still. And when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, surely the wrath of man shall praise you, the remnant of wrath, you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this reading of your sacred and holy word. And we call on you, O Lord, that you would be pleased to bless us with understanding that you'd be pleased, O Lord, to open our hearts to this. That you'd be pleased, O Lord, to even change us and make us like Christ, O Lord, as you apply your word to our hearts. And to these ends, Lord, we pray in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Psalm 76 is a call to glorify God uh, for great deliverance. It's also a, a call, it's a, it's a call of praise, it's a call for God's church to praise God uh, for the future consummation of his kingdom. The psalm, as we see, it not only looks backwards, but it also looks forward. If we look at the psalm, verses 1 through 6, or roughly half the psalm, looks back to a great deliverance that Israel enjoyed uh, a deliverance that was given to her from God where he miraculously intervened uh, and saved her. And the second half of the psalm, as we're going to see, looks beyond Israel uh, to all of the people of God. Now, sometimes when I'm preparing messages, my sermon outlines come to me quite easily, actually. I uh, will spend some time in the passage until I I think I have some understanding of the text. I review commentaries and what have you, whatever I have access to, to uh, see if I'm on target. And um, usually an outline just kind of comes, you know, at some point or another. I like to have an outline by Wednesday usually. But there are other weeks where the process just doesn't go that way. And uh, this was one of those weeks where it was a real wrestling match, not for want of material, but for want of a focus. There's always a temptation when you have so many things that you could share about a text. There's a temptation to put it all in a big wheelbarrow and just bring it in here and dump it on everyone. And uh, there's lots of things that I suppose could be gleaned from that. But uh, when those kinds of sermons are preached, it's usually very apparent about halfway through by the facial expressions that people are wondering, where are you going with all of this? I don't know, but at this point, it's, we've got another 15 minutes, and this will soon be behind us. I don't know what he was on about back there, but I'm very happy that it's over. Uh, I didn't want to do that to you. It was a real temptation to do that, but 
Um, of all of the directions we could go with Psalm 76, the direction that I, I want to go with this is victory over darkness. Victory over darkness. So often we reach out to our loved ones, don't we? We reach out to folks who are generally very sluggish. We, we give invitations until we, we're afraid to give another invitation. So we don't want to become dreadfully irritating. We don't want people, when they see us coming, to avoid us and say, oh, he's going to invite me to church one more time, or he's going to invite me to that coffee hour, or something like that's going to happen. What is between um, our loved ones and faith in Jesus Christ? It's darkness. It's darkness. And the psalm here, the psalmist is, is speaking about darkness. Uh, and he is actually speaking about deliverance from darkness. There are three aspects of deliverance from darkness in our psalm that I would like to bring out this morning that is very clearly embedded in this, in this sacred song. And the first aspect of it is blindness. You know, one of the, one of the dreadful things about darkness is it blinds us. Uh, you can't see in the dark, can you? Uh, the most dreadful thing about spiritual blindness, though, is that it is a willful blindness. Uh, we can't see because we don't want to see. Uh, the problem isn't so much with our eyes as it is with our hearts. Our hearts simply don't want to see the truth. We simply don't want to see it unless God intervenes. And another aspect of darkness is the oppression uh, that evil uh, sometimes uh, assaults us with. Um, sometimes we find ourselves assaulted with temptation or we'll even find ourselves assaulted with, uh, with evil itself. Uh, on uh, many, many occasions. And this aspect is certainly, uh, the Psalms has a lot to say about this aspect of darkness. And there's a another aspect of darkness that the Psalm speaks about, and that, that aspect is the presence of evil itself. And the Psalm celebrates the fact that God will come one day and he will put an end to all evil. He'll put an end to it all. So it is those three aspects of darkness that I want to focus on this morning. So let's begin with the first. And we look at verse 1, where we read the words, In Judah, God is known. Uh, in Judah, God is known. Uh, I don't know if you've put any thought to this, but uh, out of all of the people and nations of this world, God chose Abraham, for instance. How many folks do you suppose there there were on the planet during Abraham's time. Hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps millions of people. It was believed that the, the earth wasn't quite as populated then. I don't know how many there were. We don't have any census in existence to know the answer to that. But what I do know is out of all of the people, God chose Abraham, didn't he? He chose Abraham. He chose Isaac. He chose Jacob. Later throughout throughout scriptural history, throughout church history. He chose David to be his king. Uh, Israel chose a king for themselves. Israel chose Saul. Uh, that was a disaster, wasn't it? God chose David. God chose 
the prophets. Uh, the prophets, uh, all of the prophets, whether it be Isaiah or Jeremiah, Habakkuk, uh, Daniel, they didn't sign up to be prophets. They didn't say, you know, in, in grade school when the teacher says, okay, everybody, we're going to go around the room. We're going to ask each one of you what you want to be when you grow up. Gary, it's your turn. You're first. What do you want to be? And it's not like Gary said, you know, I know what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a prophet. Nobody said that. That was, uh, we could say all kinds of things. We want to be president. We want to be this. We want to be that. But you don't sign up for that. That isn't something you do. God chooses his prophets. Out of all of the people in the nations, he chose Abraham, who would be the father of the faithful. And uh, out of all of the places of this earth, verse 2 of our psalm reminds us that God chose Jerusalem to be his dwelling place, didn't he? There's lots of places on this earth where God could have chose to make his dwelling place. We're told in verse 2 that his abode has been established in Salem. Uh, Salem is just an alternative word for Jerusalem. It's only used a couple times in the, in the Bible, uh, but it's, it's Jerusalem. It's the same place. It means peace. Uh, we're told that his dwelling place is in Zion. Out of all of the places God could have chose on this earth, he chose to dwell in Jerusalem. And out of all of the nations of this earth, God chose. He did not give his word to every nation on the, on the planet. He gave his scriptures to the Jewish people. He gave his, his scriptures to Israel. They were the recipients of his word. Um, in Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. Now, uh, this particular praise here, uh, is the, this call to praise here, uh, is not a celebration that's taking place in a vacuum, if you will. Um, this really makes, this is one aspect of where the sacred hymns of the Bible are largely different from especially many modern uh, hymns and praise songs, I'd say praise songs, um, for sure. So many praise songs rightly call us to glorify God and to praise God, uh, but they don't offer us really that much of a concrete reason for doing so. Uh, the psalmist doesn't make that mistake. The psalmist calls us to praise God, but then the psalmist goes on to tell us why we should be praising God. Why should we be praising Him? Well, that's what the rest of the psalm is going to uh, flesh out for us. What is the occasion of this praise? Why is, uh, why is the psalmist writing these words, in Judah God is known, uh, in His name is great in Israel? The particular occasion here is a great deliverance. We're going to talk about that in a couple of moments, but before we get to that, what I want to point out is, is that God is known. The simple fact that he is known in Judah is a work of God over darkness. He is known because of a deliverance. We'll talk about that in a moment. But people are delivered from things all the time. You know, for instance, if you watch the Weather Channel, you'll see the different storms that are covered. And oftentimes, uh, a family or two or a couple of individuals will be interviewed when there's a certain storm in a certain place. And uh, sometimes those folks, as they talk about how they, they can't figure out how in the world they survived this storm, how they survived this tragedy. And sometimes folks will say, listen, you know, it's only by God's goodness, only God's spared. Sometimes people will say that. But a lot of times, no one makes any mention of God at all. The, the praise is going to the rescue operation, or the praise goes to the doctors, or the praise goes to a bystander who happens to come by and, 
And rightly so. Let's praise a bystander who would come by and risk his or her life to save someone else. But these are all secondary causes. The primary cause, and this happens every day, uh, the primary cause when we're delivered from tragedy and we're delivered when, when we're in accidents or something that should have taken our lives but didn't, the primary cause for that is God. Judah has been delivered, but Judah, Judah understands here this morning that they've been delivered by God. And that's what the psalmist means when he says, in Judah, God is known, his name is great in Israel. Now there's, moving on to the second point here, the deliverance that uh, Israel has been delivered from. There are a lot of scholars that believe that the actual deliverance that's in view with Psalm 76 is the deliverance that Israel enjoyed, actually that Jerusalem enjoyed, when the king of Assyria come in uh, to assault, they, to assault uh, Jerusalem. If you're familiar with the, uh, Isaiah or any of the history books in the Bible, uh, there's a story, a very powerful story. When the king of Assyria comes to uh, Jerusalem, he encamps a very large army outside of Jerusalem, and he sends a high-ranking officer uh, to Jerusalem to make this public announcement. Uh, basically, what he says is, you have an ultimatum. You, you can surrender to the king of Assyria and be spared, or you can trust in the Lord your God, if you want, and be destroyed. Listen to the words. These are the words that this high-ranking officer comes in and says to the people of Israel, he says, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. And by the way, this would have been terrifying because at this particular time, Assyria had grown to be a superpower. It is well known all over the world at this time that Assyria was conquering every land they went into. Uh, they were gaining steam and it, and it was also known that they were very ruthless in their military pursuits. This would have been terrifying to know that that large army is out there. And here's this high-ranking official who comes in and says, thus says the king. Listen to that language. Thus says the king, the king of Assyria. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Hezekiah was the king of Israel at this time. He was the king of Judah. Uh, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. You, this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me, come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, each one of his own fig tree. Each one will drink from the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Hear these taunts? He's basically saying the Lord isn't going to... The Lord might be able to deliver you from small stuff. He's not going to deliver you from this. He's not going to deliver you from the king of Assyria. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you. He goes on to say, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? These are, these are countries, nations, well-known nations that were destroyed by Assyria. Where are they? Where are the gods of Sepharvium? Have they delivered Samaria? Samaria is the northern kingdom that was sacked by Assyria. Who among all the gods, lowercase g, of these lands have delivered have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver, deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Now, try to imagine yourself. You're sitting, you're sitting out there, and you're listening to this high-ranking official say these things. You're well aware that there's a large army uh, who is known worldwide as being super powerful and ruthless in their pursuits. And here is this military official saying these things. It would be outright terrifying. 
Now, when word of this gets to Hezekiah, he tears his clothes. And he calls on Isaiah, the prophet, uh, who is alive during this time and is very much uh, involved in, in the heart of his ministry. And he inquires of Isaiah, you know, give me a word from the Lord. And Isaiah goes to the Lord and Isaiah prays to the Lord. And the Lord tells Isaiah, makes it very clear to Isaiah that this thing is not going to fly that the king of Assyria will not succeed in this. And he sends word to the king of Hezekiah. And, and Hezekiah at this point goes into the temple and he begins to pray. And uh, as Hezekiah prays, God answers Hezekiah's prayer and he does it through Isaiah. He gives the answer to Hezekiah's prayer to Isaiah, who then sends word back to Hezekiah. And this is what Isaiah says. He says, thus says the Lord. See that? That military officer said, thus says the king of Assyria. You see the play on words there? Isaiah says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, that's the king of Assyria, this word that the Lord has spoken concerning him, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he'll not come into this city. He's not coming. He won't shoot a single arrow there. He will not come in with shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Could you imagine hearing that, hearing those words in response to your prayer? In Judah is God known. His name is great in Israel. See how that opens up those words in the psalm? And you know what the next words, the next words that come in the prophet Isaiah, the next verse we are told that the angel of the Lord goes into the camp of the army and the angel of the Lord destroys 185,000 soldiers. And that the king of Assyria goes back to his homeland and while he's worshiping his false gods back in his homeland, two of his sons assassinate him. He never sets foot into the city of Jerusalem. He never shot an arrow there. Now look at verse 3 of Psalm 76. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. You see that? How striking that is? Verse 5, the stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. Verse 6, at your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. You know, as I was trying to sort through this psalm to think about what direction I wanted to go with it, I was going to go in the direction of prayer. This psalm has a powerful message about prayer, and so does Isaiah 62, and I'm we looked at that a few weeks ago. I didn't preach on it, but we were looking at it during the sermon, and I thought to myself, I'd like to come back to Isaiah 62 and preach a word on prayer. And I'd like to come back to Psalm 76 and preach a word on prayer too, but just to whet your, whet your appetite just a moment. Uh, notice the word there. There he broke the flashing arrows. There God broke the flashing arrows. Where is the there? You know, when the psalmist says there, he... God did this work. 
Where is he pointing to? Where is there? Well, we see that Hezekiah's prayer, if we, if we want to turn to this particular deliverance from Assyria, we see that Hezekiah's prayer played a powerful role in the deliverance of Jerusalem that day. Now, where does uh, Hezekiah access God from? He accesses, he goes into the temple and he prays. Where is the there? Well, we might say the there is the temple. But we can even be more specific about that. As Hezekiah goes into the temple and he prays to God, where is God? God is upon his throne. And it is upon his throne that he stops this powerful king and he stops this army. It is upon his throne where he gives the word. This isn't going to happen. Why isn't it going to happen? Because I said it isn't going to happen. I can tell you right now it's not going to happen. Because Hezekiah is not king. I am. You ever think about what happens when we pray? I have to confess, a lot of times we probably don't, do we? But just what is going on when we pray? Where is the there? It's the throne of God. As we pray through Jesus Christ, we have access to God upon his throne. And the there is his throne. It is there where God breaks the flashing arrows. It's there where the stout-hearted are stripped of their spoil. It is there where they're unable to use their hands. Let's make some application now. We've been going on a long time about, about Judah. Someone might be thinking, okay, when's he going to apply some of this stuff? Right now, we're going to try to apply some of this stuff. Uh, this deliverance is great. It, it, to be there, it would have had to have been something. I mean, to, have be, to be there, to have experienced that. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. But let's think about the deliverance that we have in Jesus Christ. Assyria was a powerful nation that came, and Assyria is a powerful nation that went. Sennacherib was a powerful king who came. Sennacherib was a powerful king who went. He was displaced. Another kingdom came. It was displaced. Another kingdom came. It was displaced. But the evil one has been around all this time. He's a much greater foe, isn't he? And this deliverance that is being spoken of in Psalm 76 is pointing to a greater deliverance, a greater deliverance in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to deliver his people, doesn't he? And who does he deliver us from? He delivers us from several very powerful enemies. One is death, but the other one is the evil one. It was the evil one who was behind King Sennacherib to come into Jerusalem and taunt Jerusalem like that. This is a word right from the evil one's mouth. But Jesus comes and he, he mounts to the, he, he goes to the cross in order to displace the devil. And we see the great deliverance that we have in Jesus Christ. He has delivered us from a great and powerful enemy. Now, the, the last thing that I want to share with you, the third point is, it's from verses 7 through 9. If you'll look there with me, Psalm 76, verse 7 to 9. We read these words, But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you? 
when once your anger is roused. From the heavens you uttered judgment, the earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all of the humble of the earth. Now, notice that very last phrase in verse 9. To save all of the humble of the earth. You see, from that phrase we see that the psalmist is speaking of a deliverance that is greater than the deliverance that Israel enjoyed. In fact, the attention is going from ethnic Israel, if you will, from one particular nation in history uh, to a cosmic level. It's not just the people in Judah that are going to be saved. It's all of the humble of the earth. If we're in Christ Jesus this morning, the psalm is speaking of us. Isn't that amazing? You ever put that together? The scope of this psalm, the scope of this deliverance goes from the people of Israel to all of the earth. Do you see that in verse 9? What's going on here is what the, what the psalm is talking about is the second coming of Christ is what it's pointing to. Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17 may have seemed like an odd call to worship this morning. It shouldn't be. I want to remind you that Psalm 76 is a song, a hymn, a song that's meant to be sung in worship. And it speaks, half of it, almost half of it speaks of the second coming of the king. Where evil will be Put away. Look at the resemblance. I, I'm going to read Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17 again for you. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now notice verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves. Let me read that again. The kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. Earlier, that's where Hezekiah was accessing God was from the throne. It's there that he broke the flashing arrows, isn't it? You see the connection there? It's from the throne. He's seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come. And there's a question asked at the very end of verse 17, which is at the very end of Revelation 6. And the question is, who can Stand. Now, look with me back to uh, Psalm 76 and look at verse 7. There's a question being asked. What is it? Who can stand? Who can stand? The answer is no one. My whole point is here is this is something we should celebrate. You know, I tremble. I, I'm always mixed when I think about the second coming of, of the Lord. I, you know, we want the Lord to come, don't we? 
and do away with all of this. But then we think of loved ones who, who we, we know still aren't in the fold. And in one respect, we're like, no, delay until, until, they, come to be, until they come to be in the fold. But I think we need to rethink this. I think, I, I think in many respects, we, you know, we really need the Psalter because um, there's a balance in the Psalter. There's a balance in the Psalms. Uh, most people aren't going to write songs about Revelation 6, especially those who make their living from uh, writing praise music and worship music. Who wants to sing about this? You know, will churches pick up on this? And will they, you know, this is probably not going to be a bestseller. We see the, psal the psalmist is not interested in being a bestseller. He's interested in being faithful. And there's a balance there that God has given to us. And this needs to somehow find its way into the celebration of the church. We're all the time celebrating the fact that, well, I once was blind, but now I see. And we're all the time celebrating the fact that we've been delivered from this oppression or we've been delivered from this oppression or we've been delivered from this oppression. And these are two aspects of darkness that, that should be celebrated by all means. How often do we celebrate the fact that God is going to put an end to all this nonsense and chaos of evil? How often do we celebrate that? And I would submit to you that it's to be celebrated too. But... What do we say in response to all of this? How are we to conclude this? I'm so glad it, I don't have to figure out how we're to conclude this. The psalmist figured it out for us in verse 11. He says, make your vows to the Lord and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Do you see that? Make your vows to the Lord and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. I'd, I'd really like to allow Matthew Henry to, to conclude this for us. And commenting on verse 11, he writes these words. He says, let all submit themselves to this great God and become his loyal subjects. It's pretty simple enough, isn't it? Let all submit themselves to this great God and become his loyal subjects. Observe, one, the duty required of us all that that are about him, that have any dependence upon him or any occasion to approach him. And then he goes on and asks, well, who, who, who doesn't depend on him for all things? And then he says, we are therefore, every one of us, commanded to do our homage uh, to the king of kings. Vow and pay, that is, take an oath of allegiance to him. Vow and pay, what does that mean? Take an oath of allegiance. To, to put it in today's language, we says submit to him, surrender to him. Uh, make conscious of keeping it. Vow to be his, pay what you vow, bind your souls with a bond to him, for that is the nature of a vow, and then live up to the obligations you have laid upon yourself, for it is better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And having taken him for our king, let us bring presents to him as subjects to their sovereign. Now, what presence would that be? What presence could we bring? Well, Matthew Henry continues and says, not that God needs any present that we can bring or can be benefited by it, but thus we must give him honor and own that we have everything from him. Our prayers, our praises, and especially our hearts are the presents that we should bring to the Lord our God. 
our prayers, our praises, and especially our hearts. Those are the vows we bring to God. What a powerful message. And we're going to be motivated to do this as we understand the powerful deliverance that's ours in Christ Jesus. We're all aware of the evil that's all around us. And I hope we're aware of the evil that's in our hearts and how powerful that evil is. But in Christ Jesus, we have deliverance. In Christ Jesus, our eyes have been opened. In Christ Jesus, we've been spared from this. And in Christ Jesus, this is eventually going to be done away with. Let's pay our vows. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and praise you. You are a great and awesome God. I pray that at Tri-State Community Church, God is known. I pray that your name is great here, O oh Lord. I pray that we can sing this psalm from the bellows of our hearts, Lord. And if we cannot, Lord, if we cannot sing this psalm without being hypocrites, change us, O oh Lord, that we may sing this psalm with joy and celebration, that our eyes have indeed been opened, that we are aware that we've been delivered from evil, and that where we're headed, Lord, is a place where there will be no evil. You will do away with it forever and for good. So, Lord, the praise and glory is yours in Christ Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.